Austin Herald Radio. This audio podcast brought to you by Beacon Hill Wine and Spirits and Beacon Hill Wine and Gourmet. Go to BeaconHillWine.com. Miller still waiting for his first pitch. Roberts is going. Posada's throw. Roberts, safe. Ortiz in the deep right field. Back is Sheffield. We'll see you later tonight. Bring it a high fly ball left field deep. Down the line toward the wall. Grand slam. Shane Victorino with a grand slam. And the Red Sox have the lead. Swing a high deep drive in the right field. That one stalled to the right. Hunter on the move. Racing back. It's over his head. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. The light goes on. Puppy goes on. It hasn't happened at Fenway Park for 95 years. The Red Sox are world champions. This is a Boston Herald Radio special presentation. Stepping off the bag with Boston Herald Red Sox reporter Jason Mastrodonato. Welcome to another edition of the Boston Herald Red Sox Stepping Off the Bag podcast. I'm Jason Mastrodonato, one of the Red Sox beat writers for the Herald. My special guest today, longtime Herald columnist Steve Buckley and Red Sox beat writer and columnist Evan Drellick. So, I want to so s- I'm special, but he's not. Is what you basically no, he did too, call me too special. special. I'm not special. Yeah. Yeah, my two very special guests. I'm, right, I'm so thrilled to have you both on. We're going to talk about Red Sox topics. we got a lot of things we want to cover, and I think it's interesting this time right now where the Red Sox are really surging. We're trying to figure out if this team is for real or not. And Evan's going to have a story in Sunday's paper that I really want to talk about to start the show. Tell us a little bit about the idea of the story. So when I took this job a couple weeks ago, I didn't know what was going on too much in Red Sox land, but I'd heard from afar what John Henry had to say in spring training about backing away from analytics, uh, that maybe the team had relied too much on analytics. And I was covering an Astros team that made me think about analytics in my sleep. So the question I had was, are the Red Sox still innovators? In the same way that we knew the Theo Epstein era, go back 10, 15 years ago, Red Sox, uh, were pioneering things and, and were kind of at the cutting edge. Are the Red Sox today that? And I sat down with Dave Dabrowski and Mike Hazen. Uh, I also talked to Jeff Luna, the uh, GM of the Astros, uh, David Stearns, GM of the Brewers, and tried to get a sense of how teams are innovating. And the answer is the Red Sox still are. Uh, it, it's harder to see these days because the advantages aren't as clear as, well, we're going to get a lot of guys with OBP, as it was in the Moneyball era, just for a very basic example. Um, and but you don't th- call this the money ball era anymore, right? You have a different term that you've given it? I don't think it's me. I think it's people in general. It's, it's the big data era. I mean, you know, think about how long ago Moneyball came out. That was about the 2002 season. Yeah, but if I could just interrupt, you did write ahead. that this is the end of the Moneyball era. I you, did, but you, I didn't you did, write... You, you, no, not being a wise ass. You wrote that with a certain, like, like a declaration almost. I did it without thinking that it was not something that was kind of widely accepted. I think this is an era that is still kind of the offspring of the Moneyball era, but there's so much more out there data-wise now that it's about how do you get the data together and apply it. And that application is what kept coming up with sitting down with Hazen, uh, sitting down with Dabrowski. It's, all right, everybody can get the StatCast exit velo data that some people hate and some people love, as Jason knows pretty well. Uh, but what do you do with it? How do you deliver it to the player? So in some way, we're actually moving back to a point where what's important is the human touch. It's the coach who can actually make it relevant to the player. Because there's too much data. Sure, right. And then there's also the question of how much of an effort are you making for more off-the-field things, i.e. 
sleep patterns, right? We've seen the Red Sox make some movements there. But a lot of these projects that teams undertake don't see the light of day. Mike Hazen said that, you know, there have been stuff that's been started, stopped, and never talked about because why would you talk about it if it didn't work? Um, on the player acquisition side, I think when people talk about analytics, you imagine a guy holding a sheet of paper with numbers and a, a guy holding a scouting report and then figuring out what it should be. And what we've reached is a stage where there's some way to com combine those objectively. And the Red Sox have that framework. The Astros have that framework. Not everybody does, though. Nebraska said the Tigers weren't coming from that framework. And it's, it's a relatively new thing to have uh, kind of a structure advising you. It's not pulling the trigger. Somebody has to do that. Um, usually Steve Buckley. But <laughs> So I, tell us. No, I was just going to interrupt. I, I don't know if this dovetails into what you're saying, but I did find it interesting that uh, when I asked John Farrell the other day about Jackie Bradley Jr.'s upswing in offense, he was talking about how he's first pitch hitting, attacking the pitchers, and, and which is the direct opposite of what we learned from Theo 10, 12 years ago, working the count, 7, 8, 9, 10 pitches. And, and what the and 2013 Red Sox were doing. Yeah, and they, they almost I, – I remember Theo – um, it was like uh, papal dispensation to Nomar. Well, it's all right for Nomar because you know he's 353 first pitch batting average. Well, we're going to let him do it, but everyone else better get in line. And and now here's Jackie on a 17 game hitting streak, going into Thursday night, and being applauded for attacking pitchers and going first pitch, second pitch, and uh, uh, such a departure of what me as a columnist and other people who write about baseball in Boston have been. Uh, had thrown at us the last 10, 12 and, years. And I think Jackie Bradley is one of the one of the cases of innovation in itself because Jackie was taught in the minor leagues everything that you just said to take pitches, to drive up pitch counts, to get on base, and that was his focus was on base percentage, which he had in the minor leagues for the most part a really good on base percentage. Well, he came up to the majors and, as John Farrell likes to say, tried to create his own strike zone. Essentially, just tried to get on base all the time, and he was striking out. He was getting mad at calls. He didn't think the strike zone was fair, so he's had to adapt. And I think this whole Red Sox team is almost adapting that way, which we could talk more about. But I'm curious, Evan, in your story, what were your findings then how are the Red Sox being innovative well so talking about the minor leagues and, and instituting an approach in the minor leagues if you're gonna make a change I was talking about this with Mike Hazen that's the place you're gonna do it you can't do it at the big league level because when you make a change at the big league level you better damn be right uh, because if you're not you're gonna lose the confidence of your players they're not gonna listen to you the next time around you've got to be sure what you're doing is the right thing to do uh, but the idea that you have an approach in the minor leagues that you might institute somewhat broadly, that's still true, because how else would you test something out if you have a belief that it could work? Um, so what are, what are they doing? What specifically are the Red Sox doing differently than others right now? I don't know, and most people don't know, and this is the problem from an outside perspective, is that, and Dave Dombrowski said this, it's very difficult to say who's leading what, and he, this is the president of baseball operations saying, I don't know what other teams are doing, because now we're in an era where everything is being kept very, very quiet. Why would you want to share the advantage you have? Uh, <coughs> so to find exactly what they're doing, it's going to take a lot of looking. It's probably going to take a lot of looking at farm systems. The Astros, for example, have uh, a new approach with their minor league system where they're applying the analytics more directly. They've hired people to do what they were doing at the major league level at the minor league level. Uh, they've replaced some more traditional coaches with that role. So you're seeing a direct application in the minors. Um, but they're not, they're not going to stand there and say, you know, this is the new advantage we, we think we have. So what was the most, you know, what do you think was the, the most interesting thing you learned? or what, what, Why should people read this story on Sunday? What's, what's going to 
be the bright spot of it. Absolutely nothing. No. I, the, the, the most interesting thing to me was hearing from Dombrowski and Hazen the amount that goes into it from the Red Sox perspective because I think there is a misperception. I think people look at Dombrowski and assume it's an old-school approach only. Now, to say that the Red Sox are uh, quite in line with the most progressive thinkers, I don't know about that, but they've added to the analytics department. They have two separate <coughs> branches. There's uh, sports science and what they call sock science. Sox science is the analytical. That's the numbers. and um, Sports science is looking at more the off the field type of stuff. Uh, Sleep so patterns, as you talk. Right, about. exactly. So uh, they've, they've got a little terminology there. They're adding to this department. Um, it's something Dabrowski cares about, and this structure of decision making is in place. It's not a situation where uh, it's so old school that it's just well, let me go on my gut feel of stats and or, or versus the uh, the scouting report. Thanks, Evan, so much for joining us. That's really interesting. We'll have to read about it in Sunday's Herald. Uh, Steve, it's good to have you back at Fenway here. Um, you know, it seems like you're retired sometimes. I never <laughs> see you. Good. Well, you know, I've got a lot of you know Patriots and Bruins, a lot of different. Oh, things so much, so much good, to do. Good to be back here with all the little people at Fenway. Yeah, uh, but it's always interesting to hear what you have to say. You've been covering baseball for 96 years, right? Yes, yes. Your 96 year covering yes. baseball. I helped John McGraw, uh, uh, you know, with the New York Giants when he first came over, and uh, then came into the American League. So I've been around for a long time. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, as much as I love talking about the Red Sox uh, you always bring a unique perspective because you have seen so much baseball um, what is it does this team watching right now I mean what's what stands out to you as you know are there different things about this team or are there different things about the game like what are, what are some of your observations been well I mean one big observation for me is that uh, they are and it's almost like a riddle is that they have this great record and they're in first place and competing for first place at a time when they're bought and paid for ace, David Price, uh, $217 million, is pitching very poorly. I mean, obviously the 4-1 and record is deceiving uh, going into Thursday night. Um, but if you had told me in spring training that, that, Rick, that uh, David Price would have a 6.75 ERA as of a certain date in late May, and that the Red Sox would be competing for first place on the strength of pitching by Rick Porcello and certainly Stephen Wright, I would say, no, it's not plausible. And an offense. Yeah. I mean, the offense, the, the offense was, um, was, was capable of putting up those numbers. Now, right. I hate not to say surprising. I told you so. I'm not surprised by Jackie Bradley. You know, you know I, mean, I am surprised he's on a 17, 18-game hitting streak, and then on that clip he's got a lot of doubles and home runs. Yes, I am surprised by that. But I have been... Uh, uh, a bullish on Jackie Bradley Jr. for a couple of years because I, I just see a, such a talented guy there, and I always thought that, and I did write, I did write like everybody. Oh, if he just hits two fifty, you can put him out in center field. No, you know. Now we have, we have to readjust that because, uh, given what he did last August when he hit like three fifty something for an entire four fifty for twenty five yeah. games, it was and unbelievable. He's yeah. the best hitter in the majors for twenty five games. So if, if he is capable of that, I know he tanked in September. But if he is capable of that for a month, and if he is capable of doing what he did during what he's been doing during this juncture in the season, uh, then he's capable of doing that more often. So I think that we, 
IEI should readjust and say, okay, he's not a 250 hitter. Now we should expect more from him. He's not going to be a 330 hitter every year. No. But there's no reason why a talented guy like that can't hit between 280 and 300 and provide some occasional and, pop. And at some point, we're going to have to go back and give Ben Sherrington credit. I mean, um, I think Jack, Jackie was part of the 2011 draft, so that was still Theo's draft, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but a, a lot of the development that you know these guys had under Ben, some of the some of the other guys that Ben drafted. I mean, Porcello now pitching really good. This is going to be a conversation we're going to have to have at some point, right? Because we well, all ripped Ben yeah, out the door, well, well, and we should have. I mean, right. but but here's the thing: any team that wins a World Series, um, any team that wins a World Series, the credit goes to a lot of different general managers. Now, when the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004, Dan Duquette rightly received credit because he's the one that traded for Jason Veritek. He's the one that brought in uh, Derek Lowe in that same trade. He's the one that signed Pedro Martinez. He's the one that signed Johnny Damon. <clears throat> you got to give the late, great Lou Gorman credit because Trot Nixon was an important player on that team, and Trot Nixon was a Lou Gorman guy. So, <clears throat> similarly, the Red Sox won the t- series in 2013. You've got to give some credit to Theo Epstein uh, and also Mike Port. And if the Red Sox win the World Series, there will still be Ben Charrington guys, the Epstein guys, and that's the way I always look at it. But uh, having said that, Ben Charrington got the right amount of criticism when he left. You can't rewrite history and go back and say, "Wow, he's a great." We're guy. not going to rewrite it, but we are. You know, <coughs> I mean, we spent so much time last year saying that this Porcello contract extension was horrible. Well, I think, it's still, I think it still is. Uh, I know he's pitching. I mean, great it's right not. Now. It's not. No, he's a twenty million dollar pitcher right now. As of right now, as he of right is, now, he is. And, he's and, earning and, his twenty I, million dollars. But the, the way I look at contracts in general is wait till the contract is up. Of and course, see what you got for it. So, right. uh, on the strength of what he's done for three weeks, I'm not ready to wait. Six the flag weeks. For, oh, six weeks. <laughs> All right, you're a Porcello guy. I get it. I, I'm not a Porcello <laughs> guy actually. I just I I didn't hate the contract as much <clears> as everybody else did because I saw a 27 year old signed from ages 27 through 30 when in a free agent market even a mediocre pitcher signed from 27 through 30 is going to get somewhere close well, to I mean, 20 million bucks. I'll grant the point, but you, you know, when you, when you make a list of grievances about Ben Sherrington, I mean, Rick Rossello's contract doesn't even make the top 10. Right, that's I mean, probably that's probably true. So let's 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 right. let's let's hold back. Right. And Ben Rick has Rick. made a lot of mistakes. I'm not so. saying I'm in love with all of his moves. I just think, you know, at some point we'll have to talk about that. But Jackie's uh, Jackie Bradley Jr is a player that I I feel like it's fun to talk about because there's so many different aspects of his development and, and failure. And, I mean, when you look, he was drafted 34th overall in 2011. After a horrible junior year at South Carolina, they thought he was going to be a top 10 pick leading into that season. They drafted him because of what we see right now, his defense. Right. It wasn't for his I mean, he was an outstanding hitter his sophomore year. But it, they said the floor is he will be a major league hitter, and that's okay to draft a guy first, or a major league defender, I'm sorry, and that's okay to draft a guy in the first round. Um, is that interesting to you? That you know, Oh, it's they- fascinating, yes. And it, it, it's yet another reminder, as if we needed one, that projecting major league greatness on high school and college players is such an inexact science. You don't get as many busts in the NBA as, you know, Ralph Sampson probably wasn't as great a player as he was projecting when he was coming out of Virginia, just to pick one off the top of my head. But generally speaking, the the top, top, top players in the NBA become top NBA players. Um, 
lesser in football because of injuries and so forth. And uh, obviously, Johnny Menzel is a, is, a, is a reminder of how inexact that science can be. But you know what? In baseball, you draft guys, and then they go to the minors, and they have to basically start all over again. I always go back to that 2004 draft. Uh, I think Verlander was like one of the top players drafted in that and, and selected in that draft. And then there were a whole bunch of guys like in the 20s or the 40s that either never made it to the big leagues or if they did were not big stars. And then you got 64, 65, 66 or thereabouts where you had Pedroia, um, uh, Suzuki, the catcher with the Oakland A's, and Hunter Pence. All 64, in somewhere in the mid-60s. Right. And those are major stars. I mean, Suzuki, for a while, was a very good major he league was. catcher. And Hunter Pence is one of the top players. He's know, an all-star. And uh, so w- so what happened You know, with the 15 picks before that? Uh, I always use the example of Brian Elkers, who was a left-handed drafted by the Minnesota Twins, whose claim to fame is he was selected one pick before Dwight Gooden. And uh, so you're, you're, you're the Minnesota Twins, and, you, and you're sitting there, and you're like, oh, we really like this guy, Brian Elkers, and you take him before Dwight Gooden. Or you go back to, um, I covered the College World Series in 1983. I saw with my own eyes Roger Clemens strike out 17 batters against Wichita State. And we were all agog at how Roger Clemens was the best pitcher we'd ever seen. And then the Red Sox got him in the first round with like the, what, 18th, 19th pick? And I don't know a blessed thing about scouting, but I, I was 27 years old in Omaha working for the Portland Pressero because the main Black Bears were there. And I was horrified. How could anybody, how could 17 teams pass on Roger Clemens? And the Red Sox, Lou Gorman just says, oh, we'll take him. Right. And he became one of the best pitchers in baseball history. Yeah, dra- it is, it, it's fa- It's always fascinating <coughs> to me to go back and look at, at drafts. I mean, Mookie Betts is a fifth-round draft pick. Yeah. You know, who, who saw that coming? Um, but, I mean... When you look at this team, we talk about Jackie. Stephen Wright has got to be up there in stories of the year right now. I mean, a one and a half ERA, throwing the knuckleball, which is always interesting to watch because they say it's unpredictable. Except Stephen Wright comes out every five days and has become the most dependable, predictable starter on this team. Um, you talked to Tim Wakefield uh, about yeah, Stephen I did Wright? because if if you look at Stephen Wright's first six starts with the Red Sox, the numbers are eerily similar to Tim Wakefield's first six starts with the Red Sox in 1995. And I was, I was a columnist then. It was my first year with the Herald, actually. And Tim Wakefield was released by the Pirates in spring training. He was signed by the Red Sox. When they brought him up to the big leagues, he made a couple of starts, I think, in Pawtucket. But when he got his first start in late April, it was on the West Coast. And he pitched so well that Kevin Kennedy asked him during that game, the then Red Sox manager, hey, can you go on two days rest? And he did. And he said, sure, I can do it. So in-game, while he's pitching one game, Kennedy's asking him if he can go on two days rest. And the promise was that he would pitch only five innings. And he came back uh, on two days rest and pitched seven and a two-thirds innings uh, in a one nothing victory. Well, he's throwing, what, 65 miles an hour? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so it's... <clears throat> that's the amazing thing about yeah. knuckleballers. And, uh, and by the way, I, t- I talked to uh, Stephen Wright after Sunday night's game in Yankee Stadium before I talked to Wake, and I said, are you familiar with what he did in 1995? And he's obviously very familiar with Tim Wakefield's general record, but not the specificity of what happened in 1995. And he said that he would go look that up. I subsequently flew back to Boston, talked to Wake, wrote a column, and then I saw Stephen Wright Thursday afternoon at Fenway, and I said, by the way, did you check out those? And he said, I couldn't even get the words out. He said, yeah. 
and not only that, he came in and looked up some of the video of Whitefield, some of those games in 1995, when I think in 17 starts, you went 14 and 1 with a very low ERA. It's unbelievable. So, the, what, what, Wake just was locked in? I mean, he, his yeah. hand was just must have been stuck in the form of well, a knuckle. Well, if, if he was here now, I don't know if he's changed his tune on this, but he, was, he would famously say, I just throw it, I don't know where it's going. Right. And uh, there, there are so many variables at play with the knuckleball. And uh, yes, Stephen Wright, what he's doing right now is is phenomenal, and it's fun, and he, it's a good story because he was, a, you know, they were just dumping Lars Anderson back in 2012 when they got this minor well, league Well, dumping, I don't know, the Red Sox are so good about that. They don't just dump players. Even when they traded Shane Victorino, it's like they got Josh Rutledge, and everyone said, Josh Rutledge, who's this guy? He's a backup well, infielder. But yeah, I'm, but I mean, that's value. Okay, that's, but what I'm saying... Know, I mean, okay, Stephen Wright was okay. a val- as okay, much value okay. as you can get for they, Lars Anderson. I, I'm sticking to my story. They dumped Lars Anderson. <laughs> And, and they got a, a minor league pitcher who, over the last three years, they've always had that, that 4A guy in the minors. Hey, we need to start it. Can you come up and pitch tomorrow? Right. Um, before Stephen Wright, it was Deverne Hansack. Before Deverne Hansack, it was Abe Alvarez. They just always have that right. guy. Right, you have to have depth that's, that's what Crystal Sullivan did the other night. And, Sean um, O'Sullivan. Sean O'Sullivan. Uh, seen one Irish guy who's seen them all. And, uh, I mean, that's what he's pitched for, like, six teams over five, six years. And he's, right. he, he, you know... Uh, and he he's that spot guy. That's what basically Stephen Wright. So was. you're not you're not. It sounds to me like you think this is fun. You're happy that he's doing well, but you are in no way convinced that he's gonna even help this team later this season, right? I mean, oh, I think he definitely will help this team will. later this season. I, but but what I'm doing is. Uh, what I have on my side is is data from every single knuckleball pitcher in the entire history of baseball. It turns around, and it turns around alarmingly and quickly. Uh, you know, Phil Negro would win 22, 23 games and lose 19. Yeah. Wilbur, Wilbur Wood, Murray Dickey, yeah. Tim Wakefield. It, it, and, and it, this is not this is not to besmirch what Stephen Wright is doing any more than I'm besmirching what Tim Wakefield did back in the day. It's the nature of the pitch. There is no Sandy Koufax of knuckleball pitchers who's going to have a 650 winning percentage for five or six years and right off into the sunset. There's no Roger Clemens of knuckleball pitchers. They are all the same. They are they are they are prisoners of the unpredictability of the knuckleball. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> that was poetic and beautiful. I saved that just for you. <laughs> I was going to write it, but I said, no, this is too good. This Prisoner, is Jason's podcast. Can you say that again? Prisoners of... They are prisoners of the unpredictability of the knuckleball. That's 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 beautiful. And, <laughs> uh, I mean, all those guys, though, that have one thing in common, when they were locked in, when they were at their best, these were really good pitchers. Really good. Really and, good. And, uh, I mean, all right, Dickie won a Cy Young. Yeah, and I would, and I would caution, uh, I would invite all of your listeners to fire up baseballreference.com, look at Tim Wakefield, you can go to game logs and just spend some time with those with those start those 17, 18, 19 starts when he was 14 and 1 back in 19. He was at one point 14 and 1. He finished the season at 16 and 8, which means, you know, do the math. That means he went 2 and 7, I guess, down the stretch. And and not all of it was his fault, but it, you know, he, he, the knuckleball wasn't as vaunted late in the season it is, as it had been early right. in the season. That's just the way it is. And the natural follow-up to this conversation, because at one point, actually a week ago, I wrote in my mailbag, um, people were asking me, well, what's going to happen in the starting rotation? Eduardo Rodriguez coming back soon. Joe Kelly's coming back soon. Including right, they have six starters. Porcello's not going anywhere. David Price is not going anywhere. Throw those two out. Um, Clay Buckholz, are they really going to make a move with him? 
I don't know, I don't know. about that. Yeah, I mean, there's the old cliche. You know what that is, right? These things have a way of working themselves out. Right. That's what all baseball people like to say. Right, but we're getting and closer to it yeah, needs yeah. something needs to happen. And the funny thing is, a lot of times things do work themselves out. And I learned when I was covering minor league baseball, Doc Edwards, who was uh, John Farrell's manager both in the minors and in the big leagues of the Indians in 88, Doc was a champion of that phrase. He believed very strongly that I'm not going to commit to saying something now because things may work. Some guy might get hurt. It might be a trade. You never know what's going to happen. But... It, when you're talking about that, Buck, God bless you. Thank you're you. allowed to sneeze on the podcast. We accept sneezing. <laughs> um, I have allergies, so there's always three or four in a row. So g- govern yourself accordingly. Yeah, I'll just I'll I'll take yeah. over from here. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but w- w- I mean, w- why I led into this is because I really thought that Stephen Wright was going to be the guy who lost his job a week ago until he threw that nine inning start. I think that nine inning start in New York is what saved his job because. It's not that he wasn't pitching well. It's just that, like you said, he could he could go on two days rest if they needed. He could do anything. He could they can move him to the bullpen. I did ask him today if he can pitch on two days rest, and he said yes. He could. Yeah, yeah. and he said he'll throw as many pitches as they asked him to. I mean, he could throw two hundred. Well, minor quibble, and this is semantics, but I don't think he saved his job. I think he created a job because I didn't really see it as his job. You're I right. started him as You're a right. placeholder. You're right. And he was just there minding the shop until uh, Eddie Rodriguez comes back. And then, okay, thanks, go back to the bullpen, go to Pawtucket, whatever. And and so rather than save his job, I think he has now carved out a job. And, and there, the Red Sox would be crazy to take him out of the bullpen, or out of the rotation. There's no, no I, right, You think there's a 0% chance he loses his job when Rodriguez yes, comes back? Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's a non it's now, a this isn't issue. to say that in a month when, when things may turn around, right. they would act accordingly. But uh, as of right now, no. He's in. So, so right Sunday in, night after the game... Uh, uh, somebody asked that question of Farrell, and and he couldn't have been more effusive. The numbers speak for themselves. I mean, he really like trumpeted that to the degree that, whoa, don't ask that question again because right. we've got our answer. Right, and I do wonder if last year Farrell has the same answer because Farrell has been so performance based this year. All of his comments, his decisions, everything's been per- performance based. Can I just based. ask you a question yeah, about that? Sure. Is is that because he's got a different general manager now and then he's got a different different parameter? In other words, maybe where Charrington was saying this, this, this and this. Is it possible and this is not a rhetorical exercise, I'm asking because I don't know, that Dombrowski has has basically told Farrell, listen, let's have a meritocracy here. We don't need to have Sandoval a third. You can put this guy there. We don't need to have Castillo yes. in the field. We, we had, so we were in Montreal, and this is where my eyes just opened to what's been going on this year. We were in Montreal two days before the season started, and excuse me, the Red Sox had just decided that Travis Shaw was going to be the starting <coughs> third baseman, and Sandoval's on the bench. And we asked Dombrowski, we said, did you give Farrell, like, total power to make this issue, this decision. I mean, I know Sandoval's not Dombrowski's guy. Yeah. But when an organization is paying someone $95 million, it's it's got to be an organization-wide decision to say, this guy's not even going to play for us right now. And Dombrowski's answer was like, I told, he goes, I told Farrell from the beginning, you decide who's best. Whoever's playing the best, that's, who, that's who's going to be in your lineup. You don't need to ask me. You decide. And he goes, Farrell was surprised. He said, he didn't believe me at first. And we asked Farrell about that, and he goes, yeah, I was surprised because he didn't specifically say things were different in the past, but he pretty much hinted it because what he said was um, 
that's not typically how it works. Okay, the cynic in me now has a follow-up question. Okay. The cynic in me wants to know if the one area, the one player where he didn't do the meritocracy thing was Krishan. And Krishan is Dombrowski's guy. But that's or am I just being a conspiratory no, guy here? How? how? When, when did Krishan... Why? Why? Explain. Giving Chris Young at bats, pinching him for Shaw when Shaw is well in the first week. Against, yes, in the first week yes. of the season you're talking yes. about. Well, that was because and that ninth inning thing was stupid, where he let him bat in the ninth inning down two runs. Right, because they have a lefty coming up and they want to get him at bats and get him. that's ridiculous. I, I agree with you on both of those points. I thought both of those were bad decisions by Farrell. <clears throat> um, I don't think that has anything to do with performance based. I mean, the Shaw's performance against lefties was last season. Shaw against lefties right now, I mean, until two days ago, he was 2 for 25 against lefties. So Farrell's actually in the right there for not wanting him to play against lefties. Chris Young in his career crushes lefties. So I'm not sure where your problem is. It seemed early in the season he was going out of his way to find at-bats for Young. Yes Maybe. or no? Okay, yeah. And which player, which general manager brought in Young? Dabrowski. <coughs> Thank okay. you. That's the okay. point. That's, that's your point. Okay, got it. Okay, I see it. Yes. Okay, I see your point. All right, that's all I'm saying. All right, but yeah, I, I, I don't want to say. I'm just saying that th- I, that's why I, I posed it more as a you know wink right. and question as a you know conspiracy buff and all that. Yeah, that's. It's I see your point. Game. I also think when you got a guy who had 330 with a 950 OPS against lefties last year, like Chris Young is, you're looking for every chance to get him in against a lefty because he's supposed to destroy them as he has been recently. Um, and I talked to him today a little bit about that, so that'll be in <coughs> tomorrow's paper. Uh, before we turn this podcast off, Buck, I am curious if you are a buyer of this team. I mean, they're in first oh, place totally. right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't even have to give me the preamble. I'm a buyer uh, not just because I like the way the team is playing, and I don't mean to disrespect the team, but more is the point. I look at the American League, and it's a pick em league. Uh, listen, the White Sox are playing great. Chris Sale is awesome. Quintana is pitching very well. Uh, maybe they're going to be a team to be reckoned with. But by the way I look at it, the three best teams in baseball right now, without a doubt, are the Cubs, the Mets, and the Nationals. Three best teams in baseball are all in the National League. And, you know, the Mets have that deep rotation. The Nationals, I'm sure, are, you know, the Cubs are just annihilating everybody. Uh, and then I look at the American League, and there's like 12 different teams that have the potential to go to the World Series. And so I say, why not the Red Sox? Because if, if, if Toronto's not going to be a great team, you know, the Astros have certainly plummeted this season. The Royals don't look as thumpy as they looked the last couple of years. They're defending World Series champions. That if, if there's going to be a leveled playing field this year, certainly the Red Sox can make it all the way to the World Series. Right. And Clay Buckholz, I, I, I know, you know, it's Clay Buckholz might not be a guy that fans love hearing about, uh, but I thought this was interesting when I asked Buckholz yesterday. I said, what. Does this team feel like any other team to you? Because Buckles is one of the longest-tenured guys on this roster. He's seen a lot of good Red Sox teams. He's seen a lot of bad ones, too. And he said last night, it was Wednesday night, in the middle of the game when they were crushing the A's, he walked over to Farrell on the bench, and he goes, it feels like 2007 right now. Because 2007, that was the team where <coughs> Pedroia was the number nine hitter. You know, um, who was hitting seventh, I think? Coco Crisp was hitting seventh. Veritek was hitting eighth. And these, yeah. these, you know, these, this is when Crisp was a good hitter for a little while, and, and Veritek was still a very good hitter in 2007. This was a deep lineup, and that's what this team has right now. It's not one guy that they're relying on. It's a deep lineup. It's everybody, and I think that's why they can sustain the success. 
I hope so. I mean, I, I, I say those words not as a fan because after all these years, I don't root for the Red Sox. I do root for great stories. I also root for great summers. And uh, I've been saying this for years. You, you, It doesn't make you a Yahoo to want to see the Red Sox make the summer interesting. Yeah. Um, and people frequently say, oh, you guys like it when they learn it. Yeah. Um, because the, the feeling is that we get to be negative and snarky and all that. That only lasts for a couple of weeks. You can be negative and snarky for a couple of weeks, and then people lose interest, and they move on to Patriots. Exactly. And um, and I've, I've had, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm the one cynic who's not buying in on Hamley yet. Uh, he, 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 he's, well, he could get hurt at any moment, he, which well, he's proven. It, it, his, his base running has been a train wreck. It has. Uh, that scares me. Yep. Uh, it, it, it tells me that he's not thinking things through. But no, that's and just the way he plays. Well, I mean, and and that's wrong. my whole point. Oh, exactly. And yeah. that's why I'm not buying in right, on it. Right, but I, I'm just and saying. it's the same thing with he, Daniel Murphy with the Mets last year. Absolutely. I said early in the season. I picked the Mets to win the World Series, right? right? And you said Murphy was going to hurt him. And I said, Murphy is going to kill this team, yeah. and Murphy killed that team. He did. All, and, and, and I said that. I'm on record. I have witnesses. And it's the same thing with Hanley Ramirez. I do not trust Hanley Ramirez yet. Yep. I am the only person. He's playing great first base, and he's hitting for power. And he well, we're all saying that, that now. But, <clears throat> yes, this script, the script so, on Hanley can change immediately. Yeah, so so I'm not buying in on Hanley yet. Am I yep. impressed? Yes, totally impressed with the way he's playing. The base running is, is an indicator that he's still Hanley, and that worries me. Right, and, of course, injuries. I mean, injuries can happen at yeah. any time. I mean, Pedroia's been injured yeah. two of the last four years. And Ortiz is 40 years old. Ortiz is 40. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of questions. Yeah. But you're right. It's going to be an interesting summer. And the other thing which I'm going to write about soon is uh, do, I don't think they have enough pitching depth. Because look at ha- what happened in 2011. We were in the same mm-hmm. spot. We said this team is so good. The offense is great. All of a sudden, in September, uh, Kyle Weiland is making a key start for them in yeah. September. I mean, this... Th- that can't happen that. again. And then, you know, just on that point, I, I thought that both Francona and Wakefield took a bad rap in 11 because they, they're, there's this revisionist historical thing where they kept trucking out Wakefield because he wanted to win his 200th career game and that they end up losing the division and not making the playoffs because they kept running Wakefield out there in pursuit of 200 wins. That's inaccurate. Uh, they didn't have any starting pitching. They were they trucking him up there yeah. because they needed him to pitch. Aaron Cook, I believe, yeah. made some starts. Yeah, and he was brutal. He took a pitch up. Yeah, he was, he was just... So um, They'll have to get some pitching depth. They'll have to make some moves. I yeah. mean, this it's not a set roster as it is. I'm sure things will change, but it is fun I like watch. Shields as a possibility until he gave the home run to Bart, so, uh, yeah. so he's off my list now. <laughs> Shields is still very much in play, I would <laughs> yes. say, yes. as a possibility. Um, they'll have to and make the, some and who gets to ask the Bart question the day he arrives at Fenway? Yeah, you. <laughs> you, you will be there. Yeah. You will, you'll be here an hour Cause, early. Cause I, actually, I actually saw a look in his face as Bart, Bart. We talked about the Bartolo Cologne home run last week off of Shields in San Diego, which made him at 42, I think, you see 42? Yeah. The oldest player in baseball history at his first big league home run. I love that. That's, That's a awesome. great stat. Yeah. It really is. But we're going to turn this podcast off now. We thank you so much for joining Steve Buckley, uh, our very special guest, Evan Drellick, who joined us earlier. I'm Jason Master Donato. Thanks so much for listening and reading every day in the Boston Herald. Uh, we'll see you next week.
Boston Herald Radio. This audio podcast brought to you by Beacon Hill Wine and Spirits and Beacon Hill Wine and Gourmet. Go to beaconhillwine.com.